You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Dr. Bruce Hartman, welcome to Real Faith Stories. So great to have you on the program today. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. It is good to be on it as well. I was reading over your notes prior to our conversation here, and I'm fascinated with the opening statement of what you wrote. I'm just going to read this verbatim. On May 5th, 2009, I was walking alone late at night and was asked by Jesus to fully turn my life over to him. That sentence alone begs the question, what were you doing before that night and what led you to have that late night walk and what happened? Please share a little bit. So I'm prone to take long walks at night if I can't sleep because there's something on my mind. And on this particular night, it was a little after 12 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, so I got up and I started wandering a very familiar circle at night and I knew the area pretty well. So I kind of knew where to go, what to do. And you're processing in your mind something. I would do this, not, I wouldn't say every week, I'd say probably once a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. This particular night, I was very uncomfortable. I wasn't where God wanted me to be. Very uncomfortable. And I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And as I walked, I came upon a streetlight. In front of the streetlight, there was light. And behind the streetlight, there was darkness. But it was a very defined crack on the sidewalk between the light and the darkness. And I remember walking through the light and saying to myself, you forgot how to pray. And that bothered me as much as any moment in my whole life. I'd always been fairly interested and committed to the Lord. As I became more successful in my career, those days would become less and less, so to speak. And it was at that moment, I wanted only one thing, and that was to know how to pray again. And that led to a couple more days of, you know, after that, I got I got a call from my brother-in-law as a pastor, and he said, I've been sitting on a car waiting for you to call. I had this feeling you'd call. So he, he and I talked about the experience and what it means, and uh, there was some guidance. And it was basically kind of like going back to boot camp for Jesus, is really what it was like. And about three nights later, I started to get back into the Bible to sort out what was this conversation I had mm-hmm. and what did it mean. And one of the, the verses I read was the great test in the wilderness where Jesus was tested three times. But at the end, he said, I shall only serve the Lord. And it really struck me. So that evening, and that was much earlier, I went uh, to a bench, a familiar bench, and I sat there and I watched this fight between my selfish desires to continue the life I had or to go a different way, which is only for the Lord. And I watched, it was almost like it was a cosmic football game. And, you know, each time I would resist, I would be told about what a great life I had. But then I was reminded about my life is only to serve the Lord. So after, I, I have no idea how much time this was, Brian. That's the one thing I can't give you, but it was it was an extended period of time. I finally got up from this bench and said, I will only serve the Lord. And from that moment, most everything I've done, not always well, has been to serve the Lord. You know, I quit work. 
I went to I went to a theological school at Drew University for seven years, by the way. I got my master's in divinity, and then because I didn't know quite what my call was, I felt compelled to keep continue educating myself. And then I got a, my a doctorate degree. And then it was then at very end, really, Brian, right at the end, right at getting the thesis, that I figured out what my call was. And that was has been very reassuring since then. So I spent seven years doing that. And now my, my whole life, the whole day is spent with one mission, just one mission, helping people walk into a brighter future. And I do that through uh, messages about Jesus and who Jesus is. And even when I write my prayers, I write a prayer every morning on Twitter and LinkedIn. I always start it with Jesus. And so people will say, how come you never say God? How come you never say the Holy Spirit? And I think it's because my ministry is Jesus-centric, and that's who my allegiance is. And then last week, I reached 14,000 people with various messages, whether it was books or my YouTube videos or my prayers or my posts. And so my ministry is that of information and making Jesus legitimate for business people. So that's what I do every day in some shape or form. Well, let's pause here, Bruce, for a second and share with the listeners what you did prior to that evening, because you had some very important roles in some major corporations, didn't you? I did. You know, most young men, we want to become football players, baseball players, or things like that. I just wanted to be a CFO of a Fortune 500 company. That's and all. That was, that's it. <laughs> so every step I took, you know, in high school and in college, and it was reinforced by the wonderful f- professors I had at college, and I was extraordinarily fortunate, and this is where Providence, as you know, takes over, to always be in the right spot at the right time. And by the way, Brian, the right spot at the right time is a disaster in in this sense that every place I got sent was in trouble. Mm-hmm. And in some way, somehow, my mission was to get them out of trouble. And I became a CFO at the Foot Locker Corporation. And when I started with Foot Locker, they were always within one or two months of having to file bankruptcy. And I remember my wife telling me, Bruce, are you really sure this is your career trajectory? <laughs> because I had other opportunities with other companies, but I really felt like this was the, the right place. And so, you know, my first year there, we, the Wall Street Journal constantly called us the financially troubled Foot Locker company. That's what you, if you read about us in the Wall Street Journal back in the late nine, uh, late nineties, I had one goal. Let's just make sure we don't, we don't, we're not called that anymore from this point forward. And through the hard work of a large number of people, really hard work and some audacity on my part, we were able in a period of three years to have the uh, Foot Locker Company have an article written about them in Fortune magazine which said what a wonderful turnaround story it was. I went through three CEOs. Each one would quit as just when things get tough. I went home one Christmas, the first Christmas that I was on the job, fully expecting I'd have to file bankruptcy after I came back from the Christmas vacation. And we were blessed with unbelievable results. It was so, so startling. And it was all because of hard work on a lot of people's parts that we had a wonderful after Christmas sales experience. And that really is what lifted the company and they've gone forward since then. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, now I'm a fortune, a legitimate fortune 500 uh, CEO. And, you know, that's all I wanted to be. It's kind of like, you know, if you wanted to play for the Baltimore Orioles or the Boston Red Sox and you get there and then you're there. Yeah. And it's a wonderful experience. But what, what happened was as I became more successful, it's only in hindsight, I realized what made me successful. It was Jesus blessing me with my dream. Mm. And those wonderful people that worked for me. And I always tell people I always get far more credit than I deserve for what happened. Obviously, I do. Particularly now, I spend I do spend time reflecting back. Not often, but what I could have done better and what I did well. So my my pastor at church kept asking me to get more and more involved in the church. I was getting signals, Brian, about that were going to lead me to that dis- that discomforting mm-hmm. moment. At night, and it, it occurred when I was the chief operating officer of Yankee Candle a few years later. I can smell them now. <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> I have, that's one of the most honorable companies in America. And it's some of the inside stories I could tell you about what, what great people they are and the quality that they put into that. That candle burns the exact same smell the first hour you light it and the last hour you light it. And there's a lot of lot of care put into making sure the customers gets the right experience. So it was there I started uh, realizing that I had moved away from God. And that was the most troubling part of that night was not being able to prayer, forgetting what my roots were. And, you know, Jesus puts us all in tough situations when he wants to get our attention. Yeah. And that was my tough situation. So you were at Yankee at the time you had this conversation with the Lord on in 2009? Yes. Okay. Now, you indicated also that you basically felt as if you had nowhere else to turn that night. Yeah. And, um, you know, people say, well, you, you could have ignored it. There's other things you can go. But you know, the compelling force of Jesus is very hard to resist. Hmm. And I just wasn't in a place where I could resist. And I told you about the three nights later, sitting on the bench. You know, the world has a lot to offer us, but not as much as Jesus. And that's really what you have to fight. You know, as you sat there making that decision, and then you finally gave in, and I put that in air quotes, you had to make a proactive choice, didn't you, that night? Yeah, and a repeated repeatedly brian not this wasn't a choice and i got up and walked away mm-hmm. this was a very very long involved answer to that question because you know when you're a when you're at the level i was at there's a lot of perks to that no doubt and there's a lot of financial security in that job and from the moment we're born our sense is always about preservation and reward that's what we think about. I mean, you cry and you get milk. Your senses teach you and tell you everything if, if you live in the world. But when you live with Jesus, surely you do need your senses like you should put your hand on a hot stove. But you learn differently. And that's really what the thirst is for, is that next level above. And that's where Jesus wanted me to go. I had to get rid of all my needs and desires. Man, I'm just processing as you share this. and then. You took this huge leap and left Yankee Candle. Tell us about that. So that was hard because, you know, they, the board members, everybody wanted to know what did they do wrong? <laughs> they hadn't done anything wrong. It was just time. 
it's time for me to go. Now, you should know that if the date was 2009 and we were just starting to emerge from the Great Recession and Yankee Candle had, like all companies, we had a lot of difficult waters to navigate. You know, what were sales going to be like? Would customers have money? Mm -hmm. How are we going to keep the employees employed? You know, what could we do? What was the most? And this is the one great thing about Yankee Candle is they always thought more about the holistic aspect of their business as and less about the finance because the CEO and the board believed that if you worried about everything and not just money, you had a stronger company. And they're 100% right. So it's it's almost like you're breaking up with a girlfriend who's done nothing wrong. You've just changed what you're interested in, right? And I don't mean to be that crass about it, sure, but it, sure. it took a while. You know, we stayed in touch and we stayed on good terms. It took them a couple of years to see I was serious about it because I didn't go work for another company. I just went to school. So you left and you felt like the next step was to enroll in theology school. And as you mentioned, you got your masters of divinity and your doctorate over a period of seven years. You said the first year you basically isolated yourself from the world. What did you do? The biggest thing I did is I didn't read the newspaper. I didn't listen to the radio and I didn't watch any news at all. So I I limited myself to the Boston Red Sox and England Patriots and the Boston Celtics (laughs) for two reasons. One is My belief is that a lot of what we hear from the world is a hustle. So when I'm always watching the news, I'm always, I I know this isn't the real facts. Like I had a conversation with my mother today. She lives in Maine. And she was very, very distraught and upset because her state is inundated with COVID. Mm -hmm. I said, Mom, there are states a lot worse off than Maine. And you have to be careful when you're listening to the news because the news is trying to get you to watch it, not really inform. So that, that I needed to get that influence out of me and more into what is most important in life and what is most important is serving the Lord. That choice to completely shut off that source of information, was that something that bubbled up from inside of you? Was Where did that desire come from? Just curious. Wait. It definitely bubbled up inside. But the second thing is, you should know, you know, a first year Theo student, it's like going to boot camp. So some of this was done out of necessity. You ha- you probably are reading 700 pages a week. You're writing just, just in the one semester, you're probably writing the equivalent of two and a half books. Sounds like law school. <laughs> it's, it's very simpler. And by the way, uh, other than becoming a lawyer or a doctor, the masses in divinity from a education standpoint is the third most rigorous in terms of how many classes you have to take. And so my days would start out in, in class at nine and meant a lot of days my classes didn't end till nine and I still had to do all the reading I just told you about. So there was really no room for other than school, my family, school, my family. And you know, so that's part of it is not just a desire, it was also a requirement. Now, as you went through that seven-year period, did anything shift, obviously, with respect to your relationship with Jesus? What did you notice? My relationship with Jesus has been pretty firm since that point. It's my relationship to my past and the people I work with that has changed the most. Explain that. In this way, 
when you're at the very top of a corporation, everybody works for you. And the need, you know, while we're friendly and polite and things like that, you become a little bit entitled, I guess is probably not a little bit, a lot entitled. I don't mean in a bad way, but you are entitled. Sure. So moving from being very order driven to being very relationship driven has been that's been the hottest transition. So when I show up at class, and by the way, I'm the oldest person in class by about 30 years, all the world's problems are blamed on my biology, right? So <laughs> it was interesting when they wanted to get a person to represent the Theo School with the student government, they would always ask me and I'd say, wait a minute, I sit in class all day long and here I'm a colonialist. Why would you ask me to represent <laughs> you? You know, but learning how to talk to people, not because I have the authority to, but because I want to develop a relationship to. There's a hidden story about Paul, the Apostle Paul, that many people miss. I was guilty of this as, as well as anybody. But he spent three years in Arabia after he jumped over the wall in Damascus. And then he had to stay in Tarsus making tents until the Lord was ready for him. And, you know, those are periods of chiseling. Because when you work for the Lord, you better be good at what you do. And that was that's what drove me to go to school. But also, I had to have my personality changed as well. And that's so I had that same period of, in Arabia. I can see that. So it was almost a 180, really, with respect to relational orientation, wasn't it? Oh, completely, Brian. is the difference between North and South. That obviously leads into what you're doing now and your whole focus is to draw people closer in their relationship to Christ, right? Absolutely. So how do you do that? I do it a, a number of ways, and I'll go back to the thesis that I wrote. The, the first part of the thesis was to explain that Jesus was good for business, one, but also using contemporary vehicles to deliver the message of Jesus. So I did a lot of research on that, there's a what they call it the quiet period in Jesus's life, and it's from like the the age of 13 to 30. Now scholars could argue with me and say no, Bruce, it's 13 to 27. But the point of the matter is, it's a 14 to 17 year old period. Now Mary was not going to let Jesus stay at home playing on the TV set or PlayStation or whatever <laughs> the children of that period did to while away their time. So he was he was a carpenter. And everybody says, well, yeah, that's what it says in the Bible, but is that real? Well, it is real. The famed Christian, ancient Christian writer Polycarp mm -hmm. wrote about it. And there's, there's enough conversations in writing that confirm that our Lord was the maker of yokes. And by the way, I just quoted Polycarp. So he was a carpenter and he knew that what most people have to do every day is have to work. So in this knowledge is you get the parables. So why are the parables important to Jesus being a carpenter? Because all the parables are very simple, easy to understand, and they're directed at people that have to work. 95% of us will work in our lifetime. And, and that's where Jesus meets us in our lives, is understanding what our life is like. And he lived that same life. So there's an authenticity in that. So the reason why I say that is I inform people by the confluence of my education and my 
previous business background. So my first book that I wrote, and this is how I do it. My first book I wrote was Jesus and Company, which gave me the authenticity to be an author. The second book was Your Faith Has Made You Well. The third book was Spend a Year with Jesus. The fourth book, which just came out a, a few months ago, called Jesus is Everything. The next book is the story about a Gideon. And then the, the last book, I don't know if it's the last book I'll write, but the book I'm working my way up to is called Jesus is Good for Business. And this is one of the things I discovered. Would, wouldn't Jesus use Twitter? Sure he would. If that's how we were all going to have to hear him. So I do a lot of social media and I'm always counseling somebody about their faith. And I know when the person's going to get a job now, because usually it's people that are out of work. I know when they're going to get a job because somebody else starts asking me if I can help them. There's one story where I was working with this uh, wonderful man. He'd been fired from his job. It wasn't his fault. And we spent six months helping him get another job. Because when you're fired from your job, that's the hardest time to transition to another job. No doubt. As he's getting his job offer, my next assignment was on the phone. That's how I know. And now the Lord's given me more than one or two at a time. Now I have three, but I'm sure over time that will grow. And I do this for free, Brian. I don't accept any payment in any shape, way, or form. This is my way of paying the Lord back for how he's blessed my life. So I do that as well. I do speaking engagements. I mostly do it with young students that are just graduating from college, like uh, Teal College or Houston Baptist or... And, and my conversation is about Christian ethics. And everybody's always surprised. Well, what if they don't? What if they aren't Christian? Well, the message is still relevant. Let me pause here with respect to relevancy. I was going to ask you why Jesus is good for business. Well, that's kind of what I do is, is explain why Jesus is good for business. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Come up with a better saying for how you want your employees to treat the customers. You really can't. Work as if you're working for the Lord. So a lot of us, we get caught up in work and some of the drama and this and why we're doing it, how much we're getting paid, what's what's in it for me. But that's not the right perspective. Wouldn't you want, Brian, all of your employees to work as if they were working for Jesus? Absolutely. So that's why Jesus is good for business. And I remember when I first I did my first book, Jesus and Company, and I started walking around churches and handing the book out for free, hoping to start conversations. And one of the pastors said, what you've done is sinful. So, you know, if you know me well enough, you'll know that I, found, I would find that a point of humor. So I raised my eyebrow and said, in, in what way? And this person said that mixing Jesus and business is, is just sinful. And it has nothing to do with sin. It's we are all God's children. And the Lord is knocking at our door. He's compelling us to listen to him because it will help us in our work lives. And so the two verses I gave you, there's plenty more, but the two verses I gave you, those are paramount to the structure of any company. If you cannot satisfy your customer, you're going to be out of business. If you always work as if Jesus is with you, all your results will always be better. That's so good. It has nothing to do with being sinful. If Jesus isn't integrated into everything, I mean, he is everything. So why wouldn't it just be a natural, normal thing, right? That's the point. I mean, what, you know, we obviously we know what um, temptation is, what gets us away from that. And in the my last book that I just wrote, Jesus is Everything, you just summarized the book. You mentioned, Bruce, that there's two really big lessons 
that your story has in it. The first is learning that the most important thing to know is Jesus is involved in your life and knowing that your path isn't as important as knowing he's with you. Could you share a little bit more about that idea? Gideon had to take on 135,000 Midianites with 300 men. Yeah, it's crazy. Knowing that God is involved is far more important than knowing how it's going to happen. And I think many of us in our relationship with the Lord worry more about how it's going to happen and less about how Jesus is involved. The the reason why I beat beat the Midianites, by the way, is the 300 men were trumpeteers and they went at night, which is very rare, by the way, In, in times of antiquity, armies didn't meet in the middle of the night. And the Lord showed him, all you have to do, have these 300 men blow trumpets around them, and they'll think they're being attacked by 300,000 men. So here's the math. In those days, for every thousand people in an army, there was one trumpet. Mm. So imagine if you're in a valley and you have these screaming people trumpeting, waving torches, you think you're surrounded. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so a lot of them killed each other too. The the God God compelled them to kill each other and then some of them escaped. And that's that part of the story is interesting, but not relevant to this. But what difference does it make to Gideon? What the plan was, he had to develop faith in God and know God was involved to execute the plan I just told you about. Absolutely. Knowing God is with you is vastly more important than knowing how things are going to get done. Absolutely. And that's it's hard for all of us. It's giving up that control. And that's kind of like what I did on that bench that night. And I started the process underneath the the light. You shared that Jesus has given you difficult tasks, but he's also given you the resources. So it's not quite as difficult as you thought it was going to be initially. Explain that, please. We can spend a lot of time worrying where we're supposed to be going, uh, but always know Jesus is going to be there with the right plan, as he was with Gideon, and everything will be fine. So don't work. So when you're faced with a difficult task, if somebody came to you and said, Bruce, I've got this monumental challenge in front of me, and they know Jesus is with them, what would you counsel them to think or do? The first thing I tell this to everybody is pray. Pray with faith. What a concept, right? We have, oh, Brian, I'm so guilty of this. The second part of that is observe. And Jesus is working with us. Jesus will be patient with us, particularly when we have faith. So observe, because a lot of people fall into the trap of treating Jesus like he's a genie. (laughs) Rub the bottle and your financial woes are over. No, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus wants to work with us. So observing what it is Jesus wants us to do, and it's trial and error, particularly at first. But as you get more comfortable knowing and can confirm you're on the right direction, the worry goes away. Here's an example of that. When I first started Theo School, I had spent 30 years as a fairly senior finance person, which meant I didn't write very much or read because it was all about numbers, conversations, relationships. I realized the first day that I was underwater. And I kept thinking to myself, well, Jesus would not have put me here if I was going to get the resources. So I had enough brains and through prayer to go see this fellow named Ernie. I have no idea why I went to see Ernie. He was the school librarian. I sat down 
And he said, you know what? You're my project for this semester is what Ernie said to me. So, you know, your first papers usually, they don't give you 10 page papers at first. You have a couple pages. And it took me, it took me the better part of a week to write two pages. That's 400 words. 400 words took me a week because it's learning. But now what did God do in this situation? Gave me Ernie. When we go down this, the river of faith, there will be people there to help us along the way. That's so good. What is it, Bruce, if you could stand at the top of a mountain and call out to everybody listening about their faith, what would you tell everybody? What springs to mind? Jesus is everything. That's the that's the first thing I would tell folks. And in this sense that Jesus, it's not that Jesus is encompassing. It's that we have to make Jesus encompassing. So when you get up in the morning, pray. And his yoke this yoke that I'm talking about, of making Jesus everything, gives you a lot of freedom, and it's a lot easier. That would be the one thing I would say to people. To move in that direction, somebody listening to this is saying, you know, I would love to make Jesus everything, but I don't know how to do that. I think you alluded to it earlier. We make it way too complicated. And we do. There are things that prevent us from doing it. Believe it or not, and this was probably one of the most startling things for me to absorb as I was interviewing and talking to people when I wrote the book, believe it or not, people don't think they're worthy of Jesus. So some people have to understand that they're made in the image of God, regardless of what other people have told them. Part of what you just talked about is what is your hurdle to making Jesus everything? Some of it is they serve two masters, which is, was my problem. That's a very real hurdle. Yes. <laughs> for those of us who had to go over it. And, and, you know, for other people, it's nights out with the boys. And I, I write about this one pastor friend of mine in North Carolina, John. He knew he shouldn't be out with the boys drinking every night. And he knew it was bad for him. And he couldn't stay connected with his family or Jesus because going out at eight o'clock at night was far more important to him than not going out, than being with his family and, you know, going to Sunday church, things like that. So that's a, that's another obstacle. So we each have that hurdle we have to get over to make Jesus is everything. To that point, I'd love to finish up here, Bruce, by asking you to pray for our listeners regarding that, if you would, please. Jesus, we are here today, here for you to compel us, to compel us to take those steps that draw us closer to you, we're here today to have you help us, help us make our movements towards you so that we can help you and help your children in this world and make it a bright future for all of your flock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bruce, thanks for sharing your story. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, Brian. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.